off after church is over uh, this morning after we're done with our worship service. Um, but uh, backing up just for a second, my name is Reggie. Uh, I'm one of the elders, one of the pastors here at Redemption, and uh, very glad to see you guys this morning. We're continuing on in our series this morning uh, through the book of Matthew called A Leader Worth Following. And specifically, uh, over the past couple of weeks, we started this series at the beginning of Matthew chapter 8. Um, and this morning, like we just read, we're looking at the end of Matthew chapter 9 and the beginning of Matthew chapter 10. So I'm going to pray for us. Um, and then we'll talk about a few things from God's word this morning. Let's pray. God, thank you for your son, Jesus, around whose name we can gather. Um, God, thank you for the truth of the gospel about which we can talk this morning. And God, I pray over the next few minutes as we look at your word, as you, we hear what you would have us hear, uh, God, that you would be at work in this place, that you would draw us to you. Uh, God, I pray that Christ would be lifted high. And that we would be drawn to you because of Jesus and because of Jesus alone. Um, God, very specifically, I pray as I speak your word this morning or talk about your word this morning, that you would use me as an instrument of your grace and love and mercy, an instrument of the gospel. Um, God, I recognize that my words hold little importance, but your words hold utmost importance. And so, God, I pray that we would hear from you in this place this morning, that you would draw us to you. And God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So let me ask you a question as we get started this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've had a gut level experience, a gut level sense of emotion? Does that make sense to you? A, just a gut level reaction to something. I remember um, several years ago um, in 1999, 2000, sometime in that time range, I had the opportunity to travel to Romania a few times to work with an organization that works in orphanages. In Romania at the time, there were these huge state-run institutional orphanages, and I have never felt such a sense of um, uh, pity for a lack of a better word than going into these huge institutional orphanages and just seeing dozens and dozens and dozens of babies in a cribs in cribs just in a room and there's not enough workers and the babies are, are, are not crying there's no crying because they've learned uh, it doesn't do any good maybe you've seen these images on tv um, I don't know but I've never had such a gut level reaction to anything is seeing uh, what might be termed a sort of a third world type of orphanage situation. It was, it, was, it was rough, for lack of a better word. It was just rough. It was a gut level reaction. Amy and I were talking last night about this sermon and uh, about illustrations, and I asked her, uh, you know, what was a gut level experience that you've had, maybe something different than I've had. And she shared with me um, something that, that I knew but I hadn't really thought about in a while. When Natalie was in third grade, my oldest daughter's 10, when she was in third grade just a couple of years ago, her teacher's husband died suddenly uh, during the course of the school year. Uh, he was right around 30 years old. And um, the, the reaction of compassion for her in the midst of that sudden shock and pain uh, was something that Amy felt very deeply during that time. I'm sure you've had that experience at some point in your life, a gut level reaction of compassion or pity or something. If you've never had that, uh, I imagine you will at some point in time. Life is difficult. Life is hard. And, uh, and sometimes we have those 
experiences. When we come to this passage this morning um, that Becca just read for us a second ago, one of the things that stands out to me more than anything else is Jesus's level of compassion for the crowds around him. I'm going to read just the first few verses again. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Throughout Matthew chapters 8 and 9, we've seen Jesus moving around um, the nation of Israel, the northern part of Israel. We've seen Jesus healing people, healing lepers, healing people who were paralyzed, casting out demons, healing blind people, healing sick people. We've seen Jesus demonstrate authority over life and death and nature. And we've seen Jesus call people to follow him and make demands on their lives that only Jesus can do because of the authority that Jesus possesses. We've seen all of this In Matthew 8 and 9, another way to look at it is that we've seen Jesus battling it out with sin and the effects of a fallen world. All these circumstances that Jesus ran into, sickness and disease and death and um, demon possession and all these other things, they're the result of sin and they're the result of our fallen world and um, the result that that sin just messes everything up. Uh, a lot of times I think we as Christians forget exactly how destructive sin really is on our world. Um, we think of sin and we think of sin as something that's unique to us, something that we hide from one another, something that we don't talk about, something that's between us and God, um, be it some type of sexual sin or some type of um, having idols in our lives, the idols of money, comfort, status, fame, whatever it may be. We think our sin is just minuscule and it doesn't really matter outside of our relationship with Christ. That's not true at all, right? The reality of the world is that sin exists. Our world has fallen and sin is destructive. And Jesus has been battling it out with sin as he's confronting the world, confronting people, demonstrating his authority over over the world. And so Jesus is traveling from town to town, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, confronting every affliction and disease, and righting what sin has made wrong. And Jesus looks around and he sees how hopeless life is without him in the lives of these people. He sees the crowd and has a gut level reaction. The, um, in, in the Greek language, uh, when it says that Jesus had compassion on the crowds, it literally means he has a gut level sense of pity for the crowds around him. And the truth of the matter is that we as believers in Augusta, Georgia in 2016 need that same sort of sense of compassion and gut level emotion for the world around us. We need to feel compassion because our unbelieving friends and neighbors and family members have a need that they don't even realize they have. 
We need to feel compassion because the same is true of people apart from Jesus today as it was when Jesus was walking the earth. People without Jesus are helpless and hopeless. We need to be honest and admit that compassion does not come naturally to us. It certainly does not come naturally to me. Anger comes easily to me. Uh, Compassion, not so much. Emotions in general don't come easy to me. And so it's a reality that compassion needs to be a work of grace in our hearts. Not the product of works, but the product of prayer and the product of Jesus being at work in our hearts so that we might feel compassion for those around us who don't know Jesus. Uh, According to Jesus in this passage, we need to realize that people without Christ are like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep who don't have a shepherd, they will soon run out of pasture. They will soon starve. They'll get caught in the wilderness. They'll get caught in, in, and die out apart from Jesus. Sheep need someone to look out for them. That's just the reality of the fact Um, Over the past few years, uh, Amy and I and my girls have had an opportunity to travel to Brevard, North Carolina a couple of times. Brevard is one of my most favorite places in the world. Um, I would like to move there and start a church if anybody wants to go. No? Ben Ben is saying no, so I guess I'm not doing that. Um, Anyway, Brevard is one of my most favorite places in the world, and we've had an opportunity to stay on a farm when we're in Brevard a couple of times. And in the pastures at this farm, they have sheep. And, uh, and goats and some other animals as well. But in the pastures where they have sheep, they have these two great Pyrenees dogs. Have you ever seen a great Pyrenees dog? They're just giant, white, nasty-looking dogs. And these dogs will sleep out in the pasture with the sheep and take care of them at night. And part of their defense mechanism is that anything that they hear or see, they'll just start barking at. So you can lay in the bed and just hear these dogs all night barking to help protect these sheep. Sheep that don't have someone to take care of them are harassed, wearied, helpless, and they will soon die. Now, the people in your life who don't know Jesus and who don't have a relationship with Jesus, they probably don't feel that way about themselves. I would certainly struggle to think that on my own and my own with because of my own pride, I would struggle to think that I have a need that I can't fulfill on my own. And so the unbelievers in your life that you have a relational um, that are part of your relational network, uh, they may not seem to fit that description of people who are hopeless and harassed and who will soon die without a shepherd Most of the people in my life who don't have a relationship with Jesus, I I don't think they would say that about themselves. And like I said, in my own pride, I would struggle to admit that about myself as well. But through the eyes of Jesus, based on what Jesus sees here, when you break through that outward shell of self-assurance, you recognize that people without Jesus are people who desperately need A shepherd. When Jesus looks at these crowds, he has great compassion for them. That's what the verses say. 
Jesus had great compassion. He felt great compassion for the crowds. But Jesus sees a little bit more. Jesus sees a little bit more. How many of you have ever heard someone talk about another person having great potential that they've never fulfilled? Great potential. That person has such great potential, but they never got there because of this problem, because of that problem. Uh, they never reached their full potential, maybe because they died early. I think of athletes and musicians who have died early and you never really saw maybe their full potential. Pastors, we hear about this all the time, pastors who fall um, in, in some type of sin and step down from whatever ministry they have and you never really see the full potential that maybe they had. Uh, personally, when I was thinking through this, uh, I thought of Chris Farley. I don't know how many of you know Chris Farley, but he was an actor and comedian um, that made me laugh greatly. And I still laugh every time I see one of Chris Farley's movies. Um, yeah, they're funny. You can admit it. It's okay. Tommy Boy is one of the greatest movies ever. But Chris Farley died young. He died early. And so we're never really going to see the potential of um, the comedy genius that was Chris Farley. In verse 37, Jesus says this about the crowds around him. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. What Jesus is saying is that unbelievers are not only like sheep who are in trouble and are helpless and need a shepherd, People who don't know Jesus are like wheat or some other type of grain that can be harvested. Now, this doesn't mean that our friends and neighbors and family members are just potential targets for our gospel combine, our gospel tractors, our gospel bullets. That's not what I mean, and I don't think that's what Jesus means. But it does mean that those around us who don't know Jesus have the potential to become a follower of Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't just see people who are hopeless and helpless without him. He sees the potential for those people to become saints, to become part of his own family, and to follow him. It might be that they might find that Jesus is a leader worth following. And so may we have the eyes of Christ to see people, hurting people, lost people, people who will starve apart from Jesus as potential saints, as potential followers of Jesus, not sinners, not people who believe something differently than we do, not people who need to be ridiculed, not people who have uh, some sort of problem that we can't identify with, but people who need Jesus just as much as we do. May we see people who don't know Jesus as potential followers of Jesus. Not just another number to count, not just another baptism to up our statistics, not just another notch on our gospel gun, but potential saints. And the reality of the fact is, it's probably hard for us to see that because um, maybe it's been a very long time since God has used us to take someone from unbelief to faith. And we wonder if there's any real potential for us to help someone else come to faith in Christ. Or maybe 
Just maybe we don't understand the grace of Christ enough in our own lives to understand that other people need that grace as well. And we'll never really love people and we'll never really offer the grace of Jesus to others until we understand our own incredible need for that grace and that love. But I have to ask, could God actually use us as individuals see people come to faith? Can that really happen? And this is where this passage gets interesting. Because after feeling compassion for people and seeing the potential for new saints, what does Jesus do? In verse 38, Jesus tells his followers, his disciples here, to pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send out more laborers to gather in the Lord's own harvest. The strangeness of this command It's pretty important, and it's important to take note here because it's unusual that these laborers would be told to ask the owner of the farm to send out more workers into his harvest. That's why those workers are there, right? They're there to bring in the harvest, but Jesus says, pray that God would send out more laborers. Why? Why? are the laborers told to ask the farmer for more help? And I think the answer is simple. It's God wants his people to proceed their work with prayer. But our work doesn't stop with prayer. Over the past year here at Redemption, we've been praying earnestly for the salvation of others in our city. We prayed very specifically that through the ministry of Redemption Church, God would bring a hundred people to come to know Christ. Not a hundred new members, not something specific for us, but that God would bring people to know Him through the ministry of Redemption Church, whatever that might look like. We've been praying earnestly for the salvation of others in our city and even around the world. And so we've been praying, and how do we go from prayer to seeing the harvest? Ultimately, that's something that God brings about, right? But how do we go from prayer to the harvest? Have you ever harvested any crops? Has anybody in here ever had the opportunity to harvest anybody? Somebody say yes, thank you. I grew up with family members in North Carolina, and um, some of my family members in North Carolina are farmers, And so they have thousands and thousands of acres where they grow different crops um, and do different things. Some of them raise livestock and different things like that. But as a teenager, I can remember riding around on a combine. I wasn't driving it. I wish they would have let me, but they didn't. I can remember riding around on a combine, harvesting these huge fields of wheat. And so you drive through the fields and um, ultimately... You know, the wheat comes up through this chute and gets sent into this, this big uh, container where it's stored until it's offloaded and taken somewhere else. But I just remember how awesome it was to see the harvest come in, right? How cool it was to be a part of the harvest coming in, of seeing um, the fields go from, from being full to being harvested. There's great joy in seeing the harvest come in. And because of that, I don't want you to miss what happens in the very next chapter of our passage this morning. Verses 1 through 15 of chapter 10. The very people 
that Jesus instructed to pray for more laborers, those very people Jesus sends out into the harvest as laborers. And so if you don't hear anything else from me this morning, I want you to hear this. To follow Jesus is to be on mission with Jesus. To be with Jesus is to be sent by Jesus. And our work begins with prayer, but it doesn't end there. It's vitally important for us to be reminded that Jesus is on a mission. Jesus was sent by God with a purpose. We know that Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God, the Father, to fulfill God's promises of being a blessing to all the nations, what God promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. We know that Jesus is the promised King to Israel that we see uh, fulfilling the lineage of David who is announcing the coming of the kingdom of heaven. He is the healer, the deliverer, the teacher who announces with authority what it looks like for God's kingdom to break into the world. We've already talked about that in chapters 8 and 9. Jesus going around and teaching and healing proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And through all that Jesus is doing, he is breaking through the power of Satan over this world to set captives free. And here, in our passage this morning, as part of the work of setting captives free, Jesus commands his followers to pray for more laborers. And then he sends them out as laborers. Right after Jesus tells his disciples to pray for laborers, he sends them out to be laborers. Why is that? Why does Jesus tell his disciples to pray for something and then send them out to be the very thing that he told them to pray for? As we pray for the harvest in our city, as we pray that people would come to know Christ as Lord, as Savior, as we pray for people who don't know Jesus to come to know Jesus, I believe that God will align our hearts with his mission and use us to accomplish his purposes. It starts with prayer. It's his harvest. The passage tells us that it's not ours. The harvest does not belong to us. But God sends people, God sends you and me to accomplish his purposes to see his harvest brought in. He certainly doesn't need us to bring about what he wants to bring about. And yet that's how God works anyway. That's how God works in our world. The way that God usually works is he sends people. Now, obviously, if you read through scripture, you know that God intervenes in a supernatural fashion to accomplish his purposes at certain times. But normally, God works through people to bring in his harvest. It's his, but God uses us to do that. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus used... Um, different imagery to talk about the very same idea. When he called his first disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Because Jesus' mission 
is to save men and women and give them eternal life. He enlists us to continue that mission, to be fishers of men, to be laborers in the harvest, calling people to increasingly submit all of life to Christ, calling us to make disciples, calling us to follow Jesus. And the imagery that Jesus uses throughout Scripture is important. Harvesting a field, catching fish, making disciples. But it's all describing the same thing. Jesus using his people to proclaim his truths that other people might come to know Jesus and follow him and turn around and do the exact same thing. But keep this in mind. When these people that Jesus sent out in Matthew chapter twin, chapter 10, the 12 apostles that Jesus sends out, I want you to realize that they had not been with Jesus for a very long time. They had not been to seminary. They had not been followers of Jesus for very long. They probably weren't prepared for what was about to happen. But Jesus gives them his authority and Jesus sends them out to proclaim the gospel. It says, and he called to him his 12 disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them on where to go and what to say and who to say it to and how to live in the midst of that going. The, the men who first followed Jesus were not the best educated. They were not the best prepared Christians. Like I said, they probably hadn't been with Jesus for very long. They were not professional pastors, but they were sent with the authority of Jesus to do the very same things that Jesus had been doing, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. They were not famous or powerful or rich or well-educated. In fact, they were extraordinarily ordinary fishermen and tax collectors. And Jesus sent these ordinary people on an extraordinary mission. All right, that's what Jesus does. He calls people to himself and then he sends them out on mission. To be with Jesus is to be sent. To be in a relationship with Jesus is to be on mission. That's why we exist as a church. To call people to follow Jesus, the leader who is worth following, to become disciples of Jesus, so that together we might be on mission. To call people to follow Jesus, who will call people to follow Jesus, who will call people to follow Jesus. To make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. To go on mission with one another just as Jesus has called us to do. When Jesus sends out the 12 in chapter 10 here, he gave them instructions about where they should go, who their audience was, what they were to announce, and how they were to provide for themselves. He sends them specifically to the children of Israel. He tells them to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. He tells them... Um, you know, not to take extra food, extra money, extra clothes, and extra staff. And so it's important to recognize in those commands that some of what Jesus is instructing is unique to this specific instance and this specific moment in time. 
But eventually Jesus lifts those restrictions, right? In Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, Jesus sends his disciples to the whole world. In Luke 22, uh, Jesus um, lifts the the restriction of not taking extra provisions and tells them after his death they should take the necessary supplies as they go about the work that God has called them to. But it seems that in this instance, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus has a focus to train his disciples to trust him regardless of the circumstances around them. God will provide for them, probably through the very people that they're going on mission to, but God will provide. And so don't worry about God's provision. That's essentially what Jesus is saying here. That's not something to worry about. You be about what I've called you to do. You be on mission. You're sent. I'll take care of the rest. Notice how the values of the kingdom of heaven, the very gospel that these people are proclaiming, are radically different than the world's kingdom. In the world, power is used to subjugate and to coerce and to get your own way. But in the kingdom of heaven, the power of God is used to liberate people from bondage. Jesus sends his disciples to lost sheep and tells them to serve, to heal the sick, to cleanse lepers. And they cast out demons in verse 8. In the world, money is king, the almighty dollar, right? But in the kingdom of heaven, disciples share the message of the gospel with others for free, just as they've received it. In verse 8, Jesus says, you received without paying, give without pay. God will provide. In the world, the audience is always right, In the world, if the audience doesn't like the message, you change it. But in Matthew chapter 10, verses 11 through 15, Jesus says some very strong things about people who don't respond to the gospel in a positive manner. It's not good. It's not, it's not, um, it's actually kind of hard. Jesus says this, in whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is If the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. That's pretty rough, right? Those are strong words from Jesus. In the world, if the audience doesn't like your message, you change it. But Jesus... That's not the way of Jesus. We don't change the message of the gospel to win people over. We speak the truth regardless of whether it is received or rejected. Because the truth of the gospel is what lost sheep need to hear more than anything else. Now with that said, let me say this. That doesn't mean we have to be offensive in the proclaiming of the gospel. The truth of the gospel is offensive enough in and of itself. Because the gospel is... Jesus died for you because you have a need that you can't fulfill. The gospel is you're a sinner and Jesus died for you. And the forgiveness of your sins comes by following Jesus. Jesus was a substitute for you and did something for you that you can't do for yourself. That is offensive. That hits right at the heart of people's pride and self-assurance. And it's tough to hear. And so when we proclaim the truth of the gospel, which is what our world needs to hear more than anything else, there's nothing more our world needs to hear. There's nothing more that people 
who don't follow Jesus, who are sheep without a shepherd, need to hear more than the truth of the gospel. And we proclaim that gospel. We don't have to be offensive. We don't have to be terrible in the proclamation of that gospel. It's offensive enough. We can be loving, but we don't change the message of the gospel. The fact that the values of the kingdom are so markedly different than the values of the world tell us something about our king. Our king is a leader worth following. Our king is a king who cares for people. Our king is a king who provides for his people. Our king is a king who offers his identity to us as his people. Such that success on the mission that he sends us on is not marked by how many people respond to our message, but our success is based on how faithful we are to what God has called us to do. While I am most struck by the compassion of Jesus in this passage, the heart of this passage is that to be with Jesus is to be sent by Jesus. To be with Jesus is to be on mission for Jesus. There is no non-mission option when it comes to being a disciple of Jesus. If you think that you can follow Jesus and not be on mission, you do not understand what Jesus has called us to do. I am sorry if that hurts your feelings, but that's just truth. To be with Jesus is to be sent. To be with Jesus is to be on mission. There is no non-mission option. The harvest is plentiful, and Jesus is calling us to be laborers and to proclaim the good news of the gospel. It's not just praying. It's being a laborer as well. Sure, let's pray that God brings in the harvest but let's also go and work in the fields like Jesus has called us to do. Let's be with Jesus in his mission. How do we do that here at Redemption Church? How am I going to call you to be on mission? You're not called to be on mission by yourself. I'm not calling you to run out that door and stand on the street corner and hold up a sign and start screaming Bible verses. We're not on mission alone. We're on mission together as a body of Christ for the purposes of the gospel. We're on mission in our missional communities as our missional communities Uh, very clearly in the last few weeks have decided what our focus will be, where we will focus on um, being laborers in the harvest and proclaiming the gospel. We're on mission together in our DNA groups as we encourage one another in the gospel to be on mission as Jesus sent us. Let me give you a couple of practical things to do. Um, And they're what we see in this passage Um, These are very practical things. Over the course of this week, I would encourage you to focus on two things. Number one, pray just as Jesus instructed his disciples to do. Pray that God would raise up leaders or laborers for the harvest. I would also encourage you to get real specific in your DNA groups, in your missional communities, with a friend, in your family, whatever it may be, to make a list of people that you know who don't follow Jesus. Write it down and pray for those people. Be intentional. Be specific. It's not hard. 
You can make a list of five people who don't know Christ and you can pray for them on a daily basis. They may live in your house. They may be your kids. Write them down. Pray for them. That's not hard. Here's something else you can pray for. I would encourage you on a daily basis to pray that God would give you the opportunity to demonstrate compassion to someone who doesn't know Jesus and I would ask you to pray daily that God would give you an opportunity to communicate the truth of the gospel to someone who doesn't follow Jesus or have a relationship with him. Make a list of five people. Pray for them. They might live in your own house. Pray daily that God would give you an opportunity to demonstrate compassion to someone who doesn't know Jesus. Pray daily that God would give you an opportunity to proclaim the truth of the gospel to somebody who doesn't know Jesus. Pray. Let me encourage you to do something else this week. It's going to be hard. It's going to disrupt your schedule. It's going to be uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Let me encourage you this week to schedule one time to meet with somebody who doesn't know Jesus as a friend, whatever it may be. Take them to lunch, buy them coffee, hang out with them, develop a relationship with them. Uh, I imagine in your relational network, there are plenty of people who don't follow Jesus. There may only be a few. I imagine there's more than a few. They may live in your own house, like I said. But schedule some time this week to sit down and be intentional with someone else who doesn't know Jesus and actually talk about the gospel. Pray and then actually go out into the fields and be a laborer, right? I, I can't emphasize enough how important those two things are. It's one thing to talk about how we should be on mission for the gospel. It's something else entirely to actually put feet to that truth and go be a laborer in the harvest. Pray, make a list. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to demonstrate compassion. Pray that God would give you an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And then actually schedule a time with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and hang out, be friendly, be intentional about the gospel. How else are people who don't how else are people who don't follow Jesus going to come to follow him if we're not intentional about these things? It's just that's just reality, right? So let's do that. Let's do that in the power of the gospel. Let's do that because Christ called us first. Let's do that because Christ changed us first. Let's do that because Christ made us his own. Not because we have to do it in order to earn somebody's favor. Not because we have to do it um, to uh, accomplish any goals that we set out for 2016 or anything like that. Let's do it because Christ has called us to. Let's do it because Christ has called us to pray. And let's do it because Christ has called us to be laborers. Uh, that in and of itself should, should be enough motivation for all of us who claim the name of Jesus. I'm going to close up our time together. Um, now, every Sunday, we close our uh, sermon with a time of response. And what that time of response looks like is this. In a few minutes, the band's going to come back up here on stage. They're going to lead us in some songs and give us the opportunity to worship through singing. And so if that's something you want to do, I would invite you to do that. I would also encourage you to sit where you are if you need to and pray and reflect maybe upon how the Holy Spirit is working in your heart and life 
this morning, um, whatever it may be, if there's conviction, if there's the need for repentance, if there's just the need to pray for somebody, um, like I've asked you to do, then let me encourage you to do that during this time as well. Also, during this time, there's an opportunity to give. Um, There's a giving table on the back where you can put your tithes, offerings, and worship as a response to what Christ has done for us in that way. Um, And during this time as well, we're going to celebrate communion together. We celebrate communion every Sunday. Here's why we do it. When we celebrate communion, it's a visible act of saying, um, I believe the gospel. I believe that Jesus died for me, and I'm proclaiming to everyone around me that I believe that truth. It's remembering what Christ has done for us, and it's proclaiming to one another that we believe it. That's what Paul says in the book of Corinthians. When we take communion, we remember what Christ has done for us, and we proclaim our belief in that gospel by doing it. So if you're here, you're a follower of Jesus, whether you're a member of this church or not, I would encourage you, if God gives you the freedom to do so, to come and take communion. I'd ask you to come down the middle aisle right here, break off in either direction, tear off the bread, dip it in the wine or juice. So remember the body of Christ that was given for you, the blood of Christ that was shed for you and proclaim to those of us uh, in this room and to whoever else that we believe the gospel. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll uh, move on from there. God, thank you again for your word. Thank you again for Jesus. Um, who was our sacrifice for sin, our atonement. God, thank you for Jesus who makes a way for us to be right with you. God, thank you for Jesus who has provided us a way to have a relationship with you. And God, I pray this morning, even as we deal with the reality of you calling your disciples to pray and you calling your disciples to be laborers, God, I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and minds to be on mission for you. God, I pray that even in this room this morning as uh, we sit here, um, that you would uh, give us that sense of mission, that sense of urgency to be laborers in the harvest. Um, God, if there are those in this room this morning who don't have a relationship with you that need that relationship, God, I pray that you would call them to yourself even now. God, we ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.